morning. I'd like you to join me in Acts chapter, or Acts. Let's try James chapter 5. Super Bowl was last Sunday. I know some of you guys are probably going through football withdrawal. So I thought I would use a coaching analogy this morning. Here are five things a football coach should not say at halftime. Number one, if you don't mind, I'm going to leave now to beat the traffic. (laughs) Number four, who's winning? Number three, enough about strategy. Let me tell you about my Amway products. Number two, they may have the talent, size, and athleticism, but we've got the headbands. Or number one thing a football coach should not say at halftime, it's not over until, hey, who am I kidding? It's over. (laughs) Now, a good coach encourages his players and he gives them specific instructions on how to move forward in the second half. And a good coach, when he looks at his team, he recognizes they are in one of three conditions, both as a team and and as individual players. And those three conditions would be they're winning, they're losing, or they're injured. And I would suggest to you that those same three conditions apply to life. If the horn blew and the band came out on the field and you went into the locker room, and I asked you how you were doing, you would have one of three responses this morning. One would be, I'm doing awful, nothing's going right, I feel like I'm getting run over. The second would be, I'm doing great, couldn't be better, life is wonderful. Or the third would be, bring the stretcher, because I'm injured. James addresses those three conditions in this passage this morning in verses 12 to 14. In verse 13, he says, is anybody suffering? Verse 13, is anyone cheerful? And verse 14, is anyone sick? And like a good coach, he's going to encourage us and he's going to give us specific instructions for those three conditions But before we look at those, let's look at verse 12. It says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Ever buy one of those toys for your kids or lawn furniture or something and it comes in a box and on the box it has those little words that say, some assembly required. And you open the box and it says tools you'll need, and this is my first hint, it'll say tools you'll need, a screwdriver, a hammer, a sawzall, a forklift. I'm not very mechanical, so I'll put things together sometimes and I get done and man, I go, that was really good. Then I turn around, there's a piece laying there. Oh no. Where does that fit in? Well, when I read this passage and I came to verse 12, I felt that way. I felt like, here's a piece that doesn't seem to fit in this passage. How does it fit? And then I realized as I studied this passage that it really fits as a great heading for this section. 
because James is laying down a principle that applies to every circumstance in life. And that is, no matter what your situation, let your word be your word. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Now, in the first century, it was popular for the Jews to make vows, make oaths. They would say, I promise and I vow by God to do it. That came from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.12 says, And you shall not swear falsely by my name. Numbers 30, verse 2 says, When a man makes a vow to Jehovah or swears an oath, he shall not break his word. When you make a vow, it is binding. Well, the Jews made vows in the first century, and they found ways to try to get around the vows, as they did with many of the laws in the Old Testament. And so they would say, I swear... But instead of saying, I swear by God, they would say, I swear by heaven, or I swear by earth, or I swear by the temple, or Jerusalem, or my head, or, or something other than God. And then when they broke the vow, they would say, well, I didn't swear by God. And Jesus addressed that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for that's God's throne, or by the earth, for that's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for that's God's city, or by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, God owns your head. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. And James, who got most of his material out of the Sermon of the Mount, repeats that in this passage. Now, how do we apply this principle? Let me give you three quick ways. Number one, it's a very solemn thing to make a vow to God. When you make a marriage vow, you better not be the one to break that. That's a solemn thing. When you stand in a court of law and say, I promise to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, that is not a frivolous thing. That's a serious thing. Do not make a vow that you're not committed to. Went to a conference one time, and the speaker got up at the end of the conference, and he said, I want everybody to join me in making a vow. We're going to stand up and promise or vow before God that we will read our Bible every day for the rest of our life. Guess who didn't stand up? I didn't because I knew I was going to break that vow, and I knew everybody in that room was going to break that vow, and I knew that man had no business getting people to make a vow that they weren't going to keep. Serious thing to make a vow. Second application, you can't weasel out of a vow on a technicality. Don't try substituting God's name for something else and think it's not going to be binding. Maybe you're here this morning, you got married as a hippie. You say, uh, we made our vows to the spirit in the sky. Or uh, we made our vows to Mother Earth. Guess what? It's binding. You say, I didn't put my hand on the Bible. I didn't swear by God. It's binding. Jesus said, you make a vow by heaven, earth, your head, anything else. It's binding because God owns it all. Can't get out on a technicality. And then the third way to apply this, which is really the principal way to apply this, according to James, is let your word be your word. When somebody asks you for a commitment, you shouldn't have to say, I swear I will, I swear, I promise, I promise, cross my heart and hope to die. No. 
your word should be your word. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have the truth. You follow the one who is the truth. And you should speak truth. When you tell a story, do you embellish it and spin it so that you look like the hero? When you promise somebody that you're going to be somewhere, and then at the time you committed to go, it's inconvenient and you renege on your promise, what are you doing? You're sacrificing your word, which is really your character. I hear people say all the time, let me be honest with you. What's that mean? You weren't honest before? James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your word should be enough. Your character should be enough that you don't have to make a vow to support your word. Don't you love it when you go somewhere and you write a check and you hand it to them and they don't ask for an ID? It's like, I trust you. Or you go to a little machine and you swipe your card and it just says approved. I love that. I think it's because I always buy the minimum amount. But anyway, it feels good. It's like saying, I trust you. And that's what James is saying here. In every area of life, your character should be such that with people that know you, you have no need to resort to a vow. You say, well, Dan, does this forbid oaths in any realm of human relations? Does this mean I shouldn't go in a courtroom and make a vow or an oath or swear? Does this mean I shouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag? No. In fact, if you look at Scripture, there are many examples of this in Scripture. In fact, Hebrews 6.17 says that God made an oath. And because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself to give us greater confidence in the promise of God. Jesus, in Matthew 26, testified under oath. Paul, on more than one occasion, called God as his witness. There are special occasions when an oath may be necessary to validate my word, especially with people who don't know me and don't know my character. But the principle for daily conversation is this. Let your word be your word. And let your word be true. And so verse 12 gives us a general principle for every situation. Let your word be the bottom line. And then in verses 13 and 14, James gives us some specific directives for specific situations, and there are three. Number one is suffering, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? This word suffering is the same Greek word used in verse 10 to describe the experience of the prophets. It's a word that includes persecution, difficulties, hardships, trials of any kind. It's the very thing that James has been talking about throughout this book. So James asks the question, and I'll ask the question, is anyone suffering today? Maybe you're suffering financially, maybe emotionally, maybe physically. Maybe you're suffering at the hand of people. Maybe you're suffering at the hand of circumstances. Are you suffering? James gives you a strategy. Notice verse 13. He says, Let him pray. What's the typical response when we're suffering? 
we whine, we complain, we retaliate, we quit. James says, pray. When I was a little boy and I got hurt, either emotionally or physically, you know where I went? I always went home. Because I knew when I went home, I would find comfort. You and I have that same privilege. In times of suffering, we can run home to the one Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 1.3, the God of all comfort. And he tells us in verse 5 of that chapter, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. I can tell you as a Christian, there, there are two things that you can expect in abundance. You can expect abundant afflictions and you can expect abundant comfort. And Paul says the comfort comes through Christ. So all you have to do is run home. In Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist was beheaded. His disciples came and got his body and buried it. They were shocked, they were crushed, they were confused. They were suffering. You know what they did? The end of verse 12 puts it this way, and I love this. It says, they went and told Jesus. They went and told Jesus. And we can do the same thing. Are you suffering? He's just a prayer away. Does Jesus understand your suffering? Listen to these words from Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. You ever around somebody who's suffering so much you can't even look at them? That was Jesus. Men turned their face away from him. Because he suffered so much. He understands your suffering completely. And he can comfort your suffering abundantly. So James says, if you're suffering, pray. Say, what do I pray for? Do I pray, Lord, take away my suffering? No. Let me show you something. should be just a couple pages from where we're at in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this at the end of verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You were to follow in Jesus' steps of suffering. Did you ever think about that? That you as a Christian are called to suffer? You're not called to escape suffering. You are called to endure suffering. You say, well, why would God want me to suffer? Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 16, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, 
He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. When you suffer, you have an opportunity to glorify God that you never do in times of tranquility. Your suffering is a platform for the glory of God. And so when you're suffering, rather than looking for the way out, you should be looking for the way to glorify God in the midst of that suffering. In fact, Peter says this in chapter 4 and verse 14. He said, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Wow. If you're suffering, you're blessed. Why? He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When you're suffering, there is a special way in which the Spirit of God rests on you that He does not rest on you in other situations. God is with you in a special way in that suffering to give you the capacity to endure and to glorify God. So James says, are you suffering? Pray. But my prayer is not take the suffering away. You say, what should my prayer be? Well, let me show you an example in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been arrested and they've been threatened by the same council that put Jesus to death a couple months earlier. Very intimidating situation. They were threatened and told, don't speak anymore in Jesus' name, and then they were released. And listen to what happens. Chapter 4, verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, and here's a prayer. They got released, they go to their friends, they hear the story, they all gather together and they pray. And what is their prayer? Take the suffering away? No. Look at verse 29. Here's their prayer. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. What's their prayer? We're suffering. They're telling us not to talk about Jesus anymore. What's their prayer? Give us more confidence so we'll speak Jesus' name even more and louder than before. Did God answer that prayer? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Give us confidence. You want to have a prayer meeting where the room shakes? Stop praying that you'll get out of your suffering and start praying that God will give you boldness in the middle of that suffering. And God will show up. He filled them with the Holy Spirit, and they went out speaking with boldness. In the next chapter, they get arrested again, and this time they get flogged. And verse 41 says they went away from the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. So when you're in the middle of suffering, your prayer should not be for less suffering. Understand that you're called for that. Understand that that's a blessing. Understand that God, by His Spirit, shows up in a special way when you're suffering. Make that an opportunity to glorify God. Don't ask for less suffering. 
Ask for more boldness in the middle of your suffering to endure it to the glory of God. So James says, are you suffering? Pray. Second condition is someone who's cheerful. Also in verse 13, he says, is anyone cheerful? Maybe that describes you today. You're glad, you're joyful, you're happy, everything's going well, life is great, you're in a wonderful mood, you're cheerful. James says, here's the strategy. He says, let him sing praises. Let him sing praises. What do we typically do when life is going well? I don't know about you, but I tend to forget God because I don't need him. Everything's going well, everything's rolling out, everything's smooth, everything's hunky-dory. I tend to forget God because everything's almost too good. James says, are you cheerful? You need to sing praises. That word praise in its various forms is used 550 times in the Bible. What the Bible's telling us is that praise should be a lifestyle. In fact, this is an interesting word that James uses here. It's the Greek word solo. It means to twang or pluck a stringed instrument. It's a word translated this way in Ephesians 5.19. We're to make melody. So James says, are you cheerful? Sit down, pick up your guitar, pluck it, and sing praises to God. Or maybe you play the harp, or maybe you can play the piano. For me, I have to play a CD. And sing praises to God. And then there's a third condition. And that is those who are sick. He says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And that word sick is a general word for any kind of sickness. However, it seems from the context that James has in mind a person who is quite ill. Because he says in verse 14, He's to call for the elders, which indicates he's not able to go to the elders. And he says also in verse 14, the elders are to come and they are to pray over him, which indicates that he is bedridden, he's down. And then verse 15 says, the Lord will raise him up. So I think when he talks about sickness here, he's not talking about a person who has acid indigestion. You know, he's not talking about post-nasal drip. He's talking about somebody who is seriously ill. Maybe that describes you this morning. Are you sick? We have people here this morning that are on hospice care. They come to church every weekend. Sunday before last, Jim Harper sat right over there. On Saturday, we did his funeral in this room. He's talking about somebody who has an illness that has them down. They're not able to function. What is James' strategy for that? Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... They will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, I'm going to go into this strategy in detail next weekend, so you have to come back. 
This morning, I just want you to notice that the content of the strategy is prayer and healing. And that's a much misunderstood subject today. So in the remainder of our message this morning, I simply want to give you eight principles relative to sickness and healing. Kind of lay a foundation for next week. If you don't get all these down, just ask me and I'll, I'll, I'll give them to you next weekend. In fact, I'll, just plan on me bringing these next weekend and I'll have them in the lobby so you don't have to be writing because I want you to listen to me because I have some really good things to say. <laughs> Principle number one. All sickness is the result of Adam's sin. If there had never been sin... There would be no sickness, no flu bugs, no cancer cells, no lame limbs. Just as death came as a result of Adam's sin, so sickness came as a result of Adam's sin. All sickness is a result of Adam's sin. Second principle, sickness can be the direct result of personal sin. In other words, Some sickness is related to my own personal sin that I committed. In John chapter 5, when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda and he singled out a man there who had been sick for 38 years and he healed him, Jesus said this to him in John 5, 14, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may may befall you. So Jesus healed him and then said, don't go out and sin or something worse could happen to you. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, they had a lot of sin in their camp. In fact, they had the the, the communion service and they were getting drunk at the communion service. And Paul says this about them in 1 Corinthians 11.30. He says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Some were sick because of their own sin. It can be a result of personal sin. Third principle. All sickness is not a direct result of personal sin. Now, get this one. Because there are a lot of people teaching today in churches that will confuse you with this. All sickness is not a direct result of personal sin. In Job chapter 2 and verse 3, God tells Satan, there is no one like Job on the earth, a blameless and upright man. He fears God and he turns away from evil. Four verses later, it says this, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. God says there's no one like Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And guess what? He got sick. All sickness is not a direct result of personal sin. The Jews thought this way in the first century. The disciples thought this way. They thought if somebody's sick, it's because they did something wrong. Just connect the dots. If they're sinful, they did something wrong. So in John chapter 9, they're walking out and they see a man who was born blind. And it confused the disciples. So they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? If he's born blind, how did he commit sin? Did he sin in the womb? 
Or did his parents sin and the sickness got translated to Who sinned? Him or his parents? You know what Jesus' answer was? Neither sinned. But this man's sickness is so that you will see the works of God in his life. You see, all sickness is not the result of personal sin. Let me show you an example of that. If you've got your Bible, look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul mentions a guy by the name of Epaphrodites. And in chapter 2, in verse 26, this is what he says about him. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Here's Epaphroditus. He's sick, not just slightly sick. He's sick to the point of death. He's on his deathbed. How did he get sick? You say, he must have sinned. He must have been out of fellowship with God, and therefore he got sick. No. If you keep reading, you'll come to verse 30, and it says, because he came close to death for the work of Christ. He's working for Christ. He's laboring for Christ. And what happens? He gets sick to the point of death in serving Christ. Very clear that all sickness is not a result of personal sin. In fact, John writes this in 3 John verse 2 to a man by the name of Gaius. He said, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. He says, your soul is prospering. You're doing well spiritually. I pray that your health would match your soul because it's not a given that just because you're doing well spiritually, you're going to be doing well in your physical health. Important principle. Not all sickness is the result of your personal sin. Principle number four. Some sickness is a result of satanic activity. We already read it in Job 2.7. Satan smote Job with sore boils. It was Satan's business. In Luke chapter 13, we read about a woman who had a sickness caused by a spirit. And it says this in verse 16. This woman, Satan, had bound for 18 long years. Satan bound her. The result was sickness, was satanic activity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says he got a thorn in the flesh, and he calls it a messenger of Satan. He got a thorn in his flesh. doesn't tell us what it is, but he says it was a messenger of Satan. What was the thorn in Paul's flesh? Well, let me tell you what I think. Look, look at Galatians chapter 4. There's a passage you may not have noticed before. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul says, You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. That's interesting. The reason I preached the gospel to you was because I had a bodily illness. Say, so what was it? Look at the next verse, verse 14. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Whatever Paul had in this bodily illness, he says it was more a trial to other people than it was to Paul. So he had something 
of an illness that people typically loathed, that they looked at Paul and they thought, ugh. You say, what was it? Look at the next verse, verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul said, you love me so much, you would have taken out your eyes and gave them to me, which tells me what? Paul's bodily illness had to do with his eyes. In fact, if you read the last chapter of Galatians, he says, see with what big letters I'm writing to you. Why did he write with big letters? Because he couldn't see very well. Paul's thorn in the flesh was an illness that had to do with his eyes. Some people think his eyes ran with pus all the time. Isn't that cool? I mean, not in that way, but isn't it cool? The the guy we consider the greatest preacher of all time stood up in front of people and they went, I love what you're saying, man, but I can't look at you. Because he had this illness in his eyes that just made him pus and run. They were loathsome to people. Some sickness is a result of satanic activity. Fifth principle. God can and does heal. This is a given. In Exodus 15, 26, one of the names of God is Jehovah Rapheka, the Lord your healer. And his healing hand is seen throughout Scripture as he healed the blind, the lame, the crippled, the lepers. And he continues to heal today. Sixth principle, very important, get this. Healing is not something we can demand of God. Healing is not something we can demand of God. When Epaphroditus was on his deathbed, God healed him. And Paul says this in Philippians 2.27, God had mercy on him. God was not bound in some way to heal him. When God healed him, it was because of God's mercy. You say, well, Dan, what about Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, by his stripes we are healed? Well, if you read Isaiah 53, you'll find that the context is all about spiritual healing. It's healing from our transgressions, healing from our iniquities. In fact, that verse is only quoted one time in the New Testament. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And it's referring there, if you read the passage, to spiritual healing as well from our sins. Jesus used this same word this same way in Matthew 13, 15, talking about Israel. He said they will be healed from spiritually dull hearts and healed from spiritually blind eyes and spiritually deaf ears. You say, but then it says, by his stripes we are healed. Healing is in the atonement. You know what? I agree with you. Healing is in the atonement. But there are a lot of blessings in the atonement that we don't have yet. Our redeemed, glorified body is in the atonement. You know that? Jesus died to give us glorified bodies. 
And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we groan within ourselves waiting for what? The redemption of our bodies. It was paid for at the cross, but I'm not going to get it until Jesus comes back or I die. And you can demand it all you want to today. You're not going to get your glorified body. It's the same with healing. If I'm healed, it's in the cross and it's God's mercy. But it's not something I can demand. Seventh principle. It's not always God's will to heal. Let me say that again. It's not always God's will to heal. Paul said a little phrase in 2 Timothy 4.20, just kind of in passing. He just said, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. And then he goes on. You left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul's an apostle. He has the signs of an apostle. He heals people all the time, and he left this guy Trophimus sick in Miletus. Why? Why didn't he heal him? wasn't God's will. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says he prayed three times to God, for God to take away the thorn in his flesh, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. It was God, not God's will to take away that illness. It was God's will to show his strength through Paul's weakness. And then principle number eight. It is always God's will that we pray for healing. A lot of people get confused on this. They say, I don't know what God's will is, so I just better pray whatever your will is. If you look at Scripture, when people, it came time to pray for somebody, they prayed for their healing. Paul prayed for his own healing until God said no. And if you haven't heard God say, my grace is sufficient for you, then you need to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Pray for healing. That's the foundation. Next week, we're going to look at the specifics in this passage. But let me ask you this morning in closing, how are you doing? You're going to be doing one of three ways. You're going to either be suffering today, you're going to be cheerful, or you're going to be sick. And James gives you the game plan for that. You ever see a, a quarterback who doesn't know the playbook and he's always out there, he's got the plays written on his wrist. So he looks over at the sideline and then he looks down and he has to figure out what the play is. Well, in the game of life, you don't need one of those because it's not that complicated. In fact, if you paid attention today, you notice that the game plan for every situation that you face is always the same. It's prayer. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Praise. Are you sick? Pray. So the application is real simple. Whatever you need, God has. So your game plan is this. Stop making prayer your last resort and make it your first priority.